I am hosting a retreat in Tulum, Mexico, in paradise this October called Bloom in Tulum. It's a five-day, all-inclusive, personal and professional growth retreat for ambitious, big-hearted women who are ready to step into their power with grace, support, and confidence. So my two biz besties and I dreamed up this magical retreat over sushi a few months back, and after lots of planning, it's actually happening. We have mapped out a thoughtful itinerary with lots of downtime to make the most of this beautiful paradise beachside location and also set you up for a powerful and memorable experience of growth. There's only 20 spots available and all three of us are promoting it to our full community. So that's like over 50,000 people. So I imagine the spots will fill very quickly. If you are interested in joining us in Bloom and Tulum, go to bloomintulum.com for all the details and to complete your application. Also know that early bird pricing ends on June 30th. So it's a really good time to secure your spot and save some money. I mean, honestly, like how fun would it be to hang out in person at a gorgeous, luxurious, all-inclusive in October? So head to Bloom in Tulum. That's B-L-O-O-M in Tulum. T-U-L-U-M. Bloomintulum.com for all the details and complete your application. It starts with probably before the baby is born, right? We all have ideas about who should ultimately be more responsible. And though a lot of lip service is paid these days to dad's involvement, it's sort of with a wink and a nudge because we know that mom is more important. And both parents are equally important. So I think the assumptions that we go into parenting with is where it all starts. So it probably starts in our own childhoods. Even if our homes are quite egalitarian, the world around us is not. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 173. Today, we're talking about equality at home with Darcy Lachman. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields Mindful Mama mentor, I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, soon to be membership, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you are here today. This is going to be a powerful conversation. I am talking to Darcy Lachman, author of All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership, and she's a clinical psychologist. And this is a really fascinating issue because we feel like sometimes we think like things have changed so much. But, you know, if you are a woman and you feel like the drudge work of raising a family and running a household defaults to you then you're kind of right. Even though dads are more involved than they used to be, the distribution of labor is really quite far from fair, unfortunately. And Darcy gives us a really comprehensive view on how gender roles are hurting mothers, mental health, physical health, they're hurting our sex life, relationships with our partners, and more. It's This is a really eye-opening conversation. And I want you to listen for a few things that that we talked about here. You know, so women do seven more hours of unpaid work than men per week. And so then this adversely affects mental health, physical health, 
and our relationships with our partner. And then the other big takeaway for me was that men don't often even see how their wives are doing more. So this is a really powerful conversation. I guarantee it's going to be catalyst for some some introspection and about you, maybe your relationship and some maybe hopefully some conversations about how we can make some changes from the inside out. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. And first, let me give you a quick message about my Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. As of this recording, I just have a few spots left. And uh, there's, it's funny, there is this conversation in the Mindful Mama tribe group on Facebook, which is a free group that you can join about how, you know, what would we be like if we were, you know, without all our frustration and irritation? And there are questions like, how do we do this? And it takes, it's not just one thing. It takes a lot of different things to start to really shift our, our, our mindset, our basis, our habits, all these different things. And that is the work that we do in the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. And it's for people who might be new to mindfulness practice, but it also might be for people who are, in fact, I've had a lot of women who teach it, teach it to children or teach it to other people. So if you're interested in, you know, taking where you are at your baseline and going to that next level, the this fall's group coaching is enrolling now. Just a couple spots left. So check it out at mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching and mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. You're welcome to hop. I'm happy to hop on the phone with you and talk to you about it too. Just email me. All right. So I'm so excited for you to have this conversation about equality at home. So come join me at the table as I talk to Darcy Lockman. Darcy, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Hi, Hunter. Thank you for having me here. I'm so glad to have you here. And I've been reading your book, All the Rage with Fervor. I've been texting, I texted a picture of it to my friends and I said, we all have to read this for book club. And and I'm so <laughs> excited by it, but it kept me up at night a little bit. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's so many amazing ideas in here, but I thought, if you don't mind, I would start with this idea that I think kind of says a lot, you know? So you were talking about, you tell the story in the book pretty early on of talking to a, a woman whose husband is a night person. So he, he stays up and so she gets up with the baby and she doesn't usually mind waking up early, but sometimes she'd kind of like to, right? And, and you know, it doesn't even occur to him to ever ask if she would like to get up early. And so at this point, the baby's 10 months old. That means for 10 months month running, the husband has had left it up to her to get up while with her daughter while she slept. And, and you ask her, you say, can you imagine a world in which your husband got up early with the baby every morning for 10 months running and you never once offered to relieve him? And I yeah. thought that said so much right there in that story. So Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this unequal division of labor. You know, I got interested in it through my own personal experience. My husband and I are both pretty egalitarian, progressive people, and we went into parenting with kind of the vague assumption that we were totally in it together and that the work would be shared. It was so obvious to us that we never even bothered to discuss it. 
as we went on in our time as parents, though, and pretty quickly it became obvious with our first daughter that a lot of the work defaulted to me. You know, as good of a father as he was, you know, as loving as he was, as much as he adored being with our baby, the work part of it wasn't something he always took notice of. And somehow it was something I always did. And I found myself getting increasingly frustrated. And I made a lot of new mom friends at preschool once my daughter started at a year. And I heard the same thing from all of them, sort of like offhanded comments about doing all the work. And I kept thinking, you know, this isn't the expectation that any of us went into parenting with. Why is it still this way? And the question became a really central one of the first years of my parenting. I just found myself coming up against it all the time whenever I was angry at my husband for this stuff, for the not noticing kind of of what needed to happen, for the assumption that I was going to take care of everything. So, um, you know, this question really, really gnawed at me. And finally, I thought, wait a second, you know, I used to be a journalist. I'm a psychologist now. I had gone back to school. I can use my journalistic skills to really plow into this question and to figure out why we're still living this way when it wasn't what any of us wanted or expected. Um, so, so I started doing research and there was so much out there. I couldn't believe it. Sociology is an amazing field. So I was really able to, um, to look at their work, to quantify what was going on in most homes, and then to dig into like philosophy and anthropology and neurobiology to, uh, to figure out why we were so stuck. Yeah. That's how to do. Yeah. Figure out why we're so stuck in order to stop being so stuck. You make an amazing case for the stuckness because I think the thing is like, we don't think we're stuck. Like this is this idea, like we men and women in general, like we have this idea that, you know, there's modern progressive dads and, you know, we share things so much more now and things like that. But this idea uh, is kind of, um, a myth when it hits reality is what you found. It's actually a conflation of two things, I think is what the problem is. Because dads are a lot more involved with their kids than they used to be. We have this idea of the modern involved father. And that idea isn't wrong exactly. Fathers do spend a lot more time with their children than they used to. And they're involved in ways that they weren't, at least in the ways that we think of like the stereotypical 1950s dad. But the misunderstanding seems to have been that we thought that the modern involved father was the same as the perfectly sharing co-parent. And it turns out they're two very separate things. And those two things never really got delineated as being separate. So we go into parenting now, exactly as you were saying, with this idea that things have changed so much. And while they have, this other piece has kind of stayed on the outskirts of awareness. You know, this the fact that fathers actually have not increased the work of childcare amount that they have done since the year 2000, when the percentages leveled off at about 65-35 for working mothers versus working fathers. So moms and dads both working, doing the same amount of work, and moms are doing 65% of the childcare and dads are doing 35%? About, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously it's estimates and every household is a little bit different, but that's kind of what the time use studies from the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicate. And for the book, I only looked at dual earner couples. I wasn't looking at stay-at-home parents because that's, I feel like that's a different paradigm. Yeah, that that is a whole... And- so you kind of divide it into childcare, and then there's also sort of the housework question, which is a whole other can of worms, which is so interesting. So let me just like give you a little background on me because for me reading this whole thing, so I'm I'm I guess I'm in one of those unicorn couples that you you're talking about, where my husband and I actually did do parent equally. Like he spends as much time with the kids as I do. Like he cooks probably more dinners than I do. He's neater and tidies up 
probably more than I do. Um, and I think, you know, kind of reading this, I was like, what? Uh, you know, I kind of was appreciating him, but also, you know, wondering kind of what made him that way. But also I come from a milieu where two out of two of the dads I know in our social group have changed their last names to have a hyphenated last name. Two other completely separate dads are the ones who cook 90% of the meals in their household. So like I realize I come from a, a situation where I'm not, your book made me, made me see what's happening for most people a lot more clearly, I think, than I had been seeing it. Maybe you could kind of paint the picture for us. Right. It's really interesting because there is a big impact of cohort effects, not just generationally, but in terms of what is going on around you. So in, you know, you're talking about fathers taking on not just more time with their kids, but also doing more of the work of running a house. And I don't know if they're also paying more attention to when permission slips are due and when diapers need to be bought and when the kids need new shoes. Because I, I would wonder if a lot of that still defaults to moms. Um, but when men see other men doing more, it's, it's almost like... Um, Contagious isn't the right word because that has a pejorative connotation, but it is, I guess, almost contagious. So Melinda Gates in her new book writes about this problem in her relationship with Bill, which actually surprised me because I thought if you had like that much money, you'd be kind of like spared, <laughs> spared these fights. But apparently that is not the case. But she notes that when Bill started at her um, insistence driving the kids to school some days, that other fathers in the neighborhood started doing it too. And she kind of thought like their wives were saying, hey, if Bill Gates can drive his kids to school, so can you. So there is, you know, you're talking about like seeing the dads around you doing more. There, there may be some of that going on. But what is more typical is that moms are like, like a lot of the work defaults more to the mother once children come along. There's this vague assumption often when men and women are working together that women are going to do the drudge work. And this has been found true not only in the home, but also in the workplace. There have been some interesting studies by economists on this. We kind of assume that women are going to take care of it, all of us, implicitly. We are sponsored by Midi Health. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, vaginal dryness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. All of these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around perimenopause and menopause, and the experts at Midi Health understand what you're experiencing and how to help. Midi clinicians are menopause experts dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions. MidiCare is covered by insurance, and with Midi Health, you can stop pushing through it all alone. Schedule a virtual visit to discuss your symptoms and health background in depth. You'll come out of the experience feeling heard and with a plan to start feeling better. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Joinmidi.com. We are supported by Melon Headwear. These hats are perfect for Father's Day. They are built to be in and around water. They last five times longer than any other hat. They're naturally antimicrobial properties. It doesn't, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains, no smell ever. It's built for the water. We tested it tubing on the Brandywine River and it was fabulous. It even floats when it drops in the water. It doesn't lose shape. It is amazing. An incredible, comfortable fit. Use code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, honestly, trust me, this is exactly what 
they want. Go to melon.com, that's M-E-L-I-N.com, and use the code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. It is, I swear, the perfect Father's Day gift. Premium headwear, melon.com. Use the code mindful for 30% off. It's so depressing. Like, I think it was maybe you wrote in your in uh, your story about how, like, when you and your husband first got together and you, before you even had kids, and he said, oh, I like vacuuming and dusting. And, and it was like, well, that's great. But, you know, nobody likes cleaning the toilet. I think, like, <laughs> there's, like, all this other stuff that was, like, just assumed that you would take care of all the other stuff. That's yeah. frustrating to me. We didn't, we didn't even articulate it. I mean, I, I know I wrote about this in the book, and I remember that moment when we moved in together, and he said, to me, well, I like the vacuuming and the dusting, so I'll take care of that. And I don't know if he was implying this or if this is just how I heard it, but I think it is true. You know, it's like a gender dynamic. Like I was supposed to feel lucky that he was volunteering to do anything at all. So if I, you know, had to then take on cleaning the kitchen and the bathroom, well, that was a lot more work, but wasn't I lucky? And that, that, that feeling hung over the conversation. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to malign my husband. I would have to ask him and he would say, no, no, of course I didn't mean it that way. I was just, you know, dividing things up. But for me, at least implicit in that was like this idea that I should be grateful to have a man who was willing to do anything at all. And you, you talk about that, that attitude, right? Like it could be worse. I, you know, I should be grateful for what is happening. That's actually an attitude that is, is really kind of holding, holding women back in general. Yeah, I heard that from women. So I interviewed 50 mothers for the book. Initially, I set out to interview 100. But after a while, the interviews were so similar. And even though they were each interesting in their own way, every woman was telling me the same thing. And I finally just said, okay, going to 100 seems kind of pointless, given that I'm, you know, it didn't matter where in the country the women lived. It didn't matter the socioeconomic status. It was sort of just always the same. So, um, so I stopped at 50, but yeah, I would hear from women, you know, my friends have it worse. So like they'd be really passionately kind of, um, detailing what was going on in their homes with some amount of anger. And then they would say, you know, but this friend has it worse. I know it could be worse. And their husbands, when they would talk to them about this, would say things to them like, well, I do more than other dads. And that was like a conversation ender often. Uh, it makes me so annoyed. It's so yeah. frustrating. I know, right. So there's nothing, you know, and this is what you talk about too, like you, there's there's sort of nothing kind of biologically, right, that makes us more inclined to to want to like do all the work of the household. And you talk about the history yeah. and you talk about the biology, but I love this study that you, you brought up um, about um, the sort of strange situation in childcare the strange situation research, um, Kotelchuk, Milton Kotelchuk, um, he, he, how he demonstrated that um, these babies who are six to 21 months were just as likely to be calmed by the presence of their fathers as the presence of their mothers. Right. And, and, that, and then they did other studies talking about, you know, showing that mothers and fathers did not differ in any measures of responsiveness to, to videos of, of, you know, understanding, um, how, how people respond to babies and things like that. It's, it's yeah. so 
frustrating. <laughs> yeah, right. The physiological responses of new fathers and new mothers to their babies are the same in terms of heart rate, skin conductance, blood pressure. They did these studies on maternity wards in the 70s when they first started studying fathers because fathers were not an area of interest for a very long time. They still are much less of an area of interest, by the way, in research. But what the researchers found was that while the physiological measures didn't differ between men and women, what did differ was that fathers were more likely to take a step back from their babies in the presence of their spouse because of these underlying assumptions about who really matters more to the baby. Mm. And you argue that that is totally cultural, right? Yes. It, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, it is pervasive because most cultures are patriarchies and men do less of the work of the home and childcare in almost every society. There are a couple of matriarchal societies where there's, where that's not the case, but it's not, um, it's not because of biology. I mean, obviously women are the only ones to gestate and to nurse. So that sets us up for assumptions about who remains important, but really after those things are, um, are over and it's not like babies are feeding constantly when they're when they're little even though they eat a lot um, it, it sets us up for this idea that mothers are more important and mothers need to do more of the work and it's very easy to back out of the work right who doesn't want to back out of the work but not everybody can clearly yeah yeah I mean it was interesting because I was talking about this with like my mother and she was saying well you know, a relationship can't be totally equal because of, you know, because of, of women are nursing their babies. I thought, well, what about same-sex couples? What about people who adopt? Things like that. Like this is, there's actually not a big biological, can, there, there can be zero biological connection and you still can have the same sort of levels of nurturing. Yeah. There, right? Yeah. Yeah, the the studies, the sort of um, brain studies, find that the changes in a, in the brain with parenthood come with involvement with a baby, not with biological relatedness to the child. So the brain activity of of a parent who adopts when they're with their baby is the same as a parent who is um, who who is biologically related to the child. It's like adults of our species are pro are are vulnerable to the attractions of babies. If we were not, babies would not survive, and our species would not have. Um, gone on for very long, clearly. So, I mean, it's the same, like our attraction to puppies isn't even so different, right? We want to cuddle puppies. Like we're so compelled by, by small helpless creatures. And that's been really necessary to our survival. And men and women are both compelled, males and females are both compelled to um, take care of small vulnerable creatures. And again, the, the brain activity is the same, uh, regardless of relatedness to the kid, if you are the primary caretaker. So it's really primary caretaking that differentiates um, the integration of neural systems and things like that uh, between parents and non-parents, primary caretakers and, and non-primary caretakers. So this all this all starts when the babies when when they're when every when right away right like when if dads are not just generally taking as much time or with with the babies. So tell us about tell us about how how this inequality kind of starts uh, like in the realm of like the the individual couple. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I you know, it starts with probably before the baby is born, right? We all have ideas about who 
should ultimately be more responsible. And though a lot of lip service is paid these days to dad's involvement, it's sort of with a wink and a nudge because we know that mom is more important. And both parents are equally important. So I think the assumptions that we go into parenting with is where it all starts. So it probably starts in our own childhoods. Even if our homes are quite egalitarian, the world around us is not. Girls and boys are not raised the same, even when the intention is that they will be, because outside factors are so influential. And kids are always looking um, to fit into a group, right? To fit into their group. And I don't know if you found this with your kids, but my kids started very young saying things to me about the differences between boys and girls, not um, anatomy-wise, but in terms of like what they were supposed to do and what was appropriate and what was not. Like, you know, and this is in the book. I remember my daughter saying to me when she was really little, mom, you know, um, maybe she was five, boys are doctors and girls are nurses. Um, and I remember my other daughter saying something like, well, boys can't have long hair. And, you know, they were kind of looking around them and trying to make distinctions to see where they fit in. And those are just two like really broad examples. And I don't know, you know, like my daughters are both in a community where moms and dads both work, like we're surrounded by professionals. So where this idea that boys were doctors and girls were nurses came from is so puzzling to me. Um, she, she did have a male pediatrician, but there were no nurses in the doctor's office, right? Um, but even if you look at, and this, some of this is in the book, studies in preschool classrooms where researchers are behind a window and can't be seen and they're making observations, there are you know, things that we think about, like boys don't play with dolls, people discourage boys from playing with dolls, but, and that's kind of broad and we can change that. But there are other things like boys um, in preschool classrooms kids between the ages of two and three, boys and girls are equally as likely to push and hit and, you know, be, be aggressive, basically. But the teachers intervene with the boys like three times as often when they're aggressive, um, probably because their expectations about boys and aggression are more attuned to the boys and they don't want them aggressing because we think of boys as more aggressive. But what do the boys learn from being responded to? You know, kids want adult attention. So it's like it reinforces the aggressive behavior. So by a year later in, a, in classrooms of three to four-year-old boys and girls, girls have become much less aggressive and boys more so because of how they were reinforced. And these teachers are not necessarily gender biased. They don't, aren't even aware of what they're doing. But again, they're more interested in stopping the boys' aggression because uh, they're more worried about it. And then the boys get the message that, oh, we get attention when we're aggressive. And girls get the message, oh, we get more attention when we babble, for example. Um, so these ways that like gender roles and, and the differences between boys and girls are reinforced are so pervasive and really, really hard to change because they're not conscious. These teachers aren't consciously doing these things. One of the books that I said, you know, imagine if from birth on children were separated not by gender, but by right or left-handedness, right? All the righties over here, all the lefties over here, that would then seem to them to become a, like a really salient category, right? And of course, that's not how we separate kids. We separate them by boys and girls. Um, so that becomes such a salient category. And then we, we start to distinguish between the two in all these kind of artificial ways. Circulating hormones don't differ between boys and girls until puberty. So you can't really pin it on biology. Wow. There, there are some in utero differences, but it's, it's really hard to say what impact those have. That's fascinating. I mean, because I feel like I, I really see a lot of confirmation bias in, in people around me, you know, like that. And for the listener, like this is this idea, like 
that kind of what you're what you are attuned to ready to see you will see and it tends to be true like if you just like if you decide to buy a Prius like you go out on the road you're like oh my gosh there are Priuses everywhere I had no idea I'd never seen so many before because you weren't looking for them in the same way like if you look around the room and you say you just look for the color red you'll say, oh, wow, there's red everywhere in my room. And then if you look for the color blue, you'll find blue everywhere, you know? So we're, we, when, what we're primed to look for is what we tend to see. And I notice that, um, that we do that particularly with boys and girls, people making these assumptions about boys and girls versus about, you know, from the, the sample size of their children, you know? And, and I remember seeing, you know, looking at my girls who were at four, so ridiculously, you know, energetic and just doing all the jungle gyms and all the crazy stuff and loud. And I realized like, if these were boys, someone would be saying, look at how energetic boys are, you know, and it was just so frustrating to me. This happens all the time, right? They do studies where um, a diapered baby is kind of videoed and they'll play the videos for people and say, um, this is a little boy, please describe his, um, his personality or something. And, they'll, and then they'll show the same film and say, this is a girl, please describe her personality. And not surprisingly, people are more likely to describe the boy as like strong and active and whatever, you know, stereotypes. And when they see the same video of a, and, but are told the baby is a girl, they use, they'll use completely different adjectives. So we do kind of see what we expect to see. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm glad that you pointed out that stuff because it's like I think that's something I mean, for me, I feel like, you know, a mindfulness practice, like an awareness practice of how we're thinking can be really, really helpful here to start to question our assumptions and start to be thinking more clearly. But we can also just do that, you know, having heard what um, Darcy just said about this study, you can start to when you know you have a thought or your friend has a thought like that, you can start to question that assumption, you know, is that, is that really true? You know, are we just saying yeah. these things? Though things ha- the, the way babies are cared for from birth also is impacted by their biological sex. So similar studies where they watch new parents with their babies, boys are more likely to be jostled and thrown about or are, are more frequently jostled and thrown about. And girls receive more kind of grooming, caretaking touch than boys. So even like our the way our bodies are conditioned to be in the world is formed by the assumptions of gender from birth. So if you say, so, so maybe then later boys are a little more active because they're, um, they associate being jostled with like being in the world, right? So there's a lot of question, you know, because there are people, you know, gender, or I'm sorry, biological essentialists will say different differences between girls and boys and later men and women are simply biological. I've even got some responses to this book with people saying, well, you know, biologically we're created for different purposes. And, and this is why women um, are the ones who pay attention to like signing permission slips. And that argument is so, is crazy to me. I mean, it's a little easier to say like, women breastfeed. So of course they're more involved. That in some way is like just probably true. They're going to be feeding more if they're nursing. But to say like all this stuff that happens later on is a result of biology really does show how extreme people get in their biological determinism. But it's so, it's so hazy, all of it, because from birth, boys and girls are separated so distinctively. Yeah. There's, there's so many different factors in everything. So then when you get to 
a couple, right? Who, you know, the, the boy has been socialized, the man has been socialized in this way and the woman has been socialized in this other way, then it kind of starts. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you write in the book um, how, you know, uh, because the woman is often starts getting up at night if she's breastfeeding, um, then she ends up being the one who gets up at night after that. And I thought, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense. But like in my life, I was like, I am not breastfeeding anymore. It is your turn. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, yeah, like, I'm you, right. room. like yeah, yeah, yeah. have it for the next like year. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And your husband was like, yeah. oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, 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 it made sense. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. That, that was my, with us, I know my, my, um, when I wasn't nursing, my kids like if I went into the room, they wanted to like stay up and hang out. And if my husband went in, they'd go back to sleep. So that's what kind of did it for us was he was the one in the middle of the night because they went back to sleep much more easily with him. And also he fell back asleep more easily than me. So that worked really well. But there are there is research that shows that employed mothers of preschool children are two and a half times more likely to get up in the middle of the night than employed fathers. So I guess you and I were, are both anomalies there, according to the empirical data. According to that, yeah. And you, you had some research that talked about how we perceive women's jobs as more flexible. Oh my God, that was so fascinating. Like that, you know, we, regardless of the job, we perceive the woman's job as being more flexible. And they, you had, there was one where uh, one spouse was a doctor and one was a lawyer or something like that. A and professor. It was a doctor and a, a professor. A doctor yeah. and professor. And then there was another where there was another couple where it was a doctor and professor, but who had which job was switched. And they both, in both cases, considered the woman's job more flexible. Yeah, so that's so funny. I know. It's in, Francine Deutsch is a social psychologist who wrote a book. I think I'm going to get having it all. And she, she gives that example. And she says, flexibility is in the eye of the beholder. And I love that line. Um, and then it was funny cause I was interviewing a woman who's a NPR reporter, right? And clearly when you're a reporter, you're on deadline and her husband was like an event planner and she started telling me how her work was more flexible. And I was like, really? I'm like, you're on deadline. I mean, I know events need to be planned. Those are deadlines of sorts too. But, and she was like, yeah, I mean, I guess when you put it that way, I suppose like I'm more willing to be flexible, <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's true. Again, like there are so many, there are, are so many gendered assumptions about who's going to take care of stuff. Girls are really raised to be, um, as academics call it, communal, right? To be thinking of other people and their needs a good deal of the time. And boys are raised to be more, to have more of a sense of agency, to think about their own needs and ambitions, um, and requirements. And so when we come together in couples, you've got someone who was raised to be more communal and someone who was raised to be more agentic. And of course, it's going to play out this way. And I know at least for me, until I was actually living with a man, I didn't see those, um, the influence of, the, of that kind of gender difference so clearly. And then, and then I began to, and I just saw it all over the place. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. 
Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. This has these costs, right? There's like a bunch of costs of this inequality, not just like, our own rage, but actually like you, you write about like women are often disappointed with our partnerships. There's this persistent underlying anger at our children's fathers. There's dampened sexual desire and women often have fantasies of escape. And in fact, there's in some countries like in Japan, there's fewer babies being born and now there's higher rates of infidelity also here in the United States. So talk to us a little bit about some of these, these costs. Like this is not just something that, is like, okay, everybody's fine with it. Like it's actually a problem. Yeah. There's a big cost to relationship satisfaction. There's tons of data on this. Um, Women who report that the division of labor in their home is unjust um, are like 45% less likely to say that their marriages are very happy. Women who feel that the division of labor in their home is unjust are also more likely to be depressed. Women actually take a health hit in the early years of child rearing that men don't take. There's, they're, um, and, and probably because they're not taking the time to take care of themselves as much as they did before they had kids, but men don't take that same health hit. Um, also the, the wage gap, the gender wage gap is really thought, economists are asserting now that it's more of a motherhood gap because women who don't have children earn, they still earn less than men, but it's not, it's not nearly as substantial because women pull back at work when their children are born or they're not promoted or there are assumptions about their worth or they're not hired. So there are economic costs, there are relationship costs, there are health costs, both mental and physical health. So um, it really is problematic. Um, The division of unpaid work among heterosexual couples has been called one of the most important gender equity issues of our time after like um, domestic violence. And I can't remember what the first one is. It might be the wage gap. So, um, you know, we could all kind of chuckle to ourselves and say, oh, well, that's just how it goes. You know, women bear more of the work. Oh, well. And, you know, we, a lot of people do say that, and this is the way that we're living. But, um, but the costs of it, I found, were, when I, when I looked at the research, found that they're actually quite quantifiable and high. 
It makes me so frustrated. And so it seems fairly obvious like that the solution, a big part of the solution is for men to step up, right? To be saying, oh, okay, well, you know, you're doing a, the vast majority more of all the work in the house, you know, I, I should be doing more. So what, why, are, why are men not stepping up? They don't often see it. It was really interesting to talk to the husbands of the women that I interviewed for my book, because while they were generous with their time and happy enough to talk to me, they were so uninspired by the discussion. They had like nothing to say and were kind of like, yeah, I guess my wife is frustrated, but I, I really don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, men are less likely to report that their wives do more to manage the children than women, which isn't surprising. Um, so, you know, the part of the problem is that children create so much work that men are doing more work once their children are born. So because everyone's doing more work, it's very easy not to say, well, not, not to see that while I am doing more, my wife is taking on a lot more. I did a, I did a podcast with a, a dad in Australia a few days ago. He, he has a podcast called Super Dad Online. And he's, um, he works from home and his wife is a nurse. And he started the interview with me by playing a conversation that he'd recorded with his wife. He said to her, he wanted to talk about this before he interviewed me with her. And he said, he started the conversation by saying to her, you know, I think we're pretty good at this. We split things pretty equally. And she kind of paused for a minute and she said, well, you know, I think it's more like 60, 40. And then she waited a beat and she was like, actually 70, 30, if I'm being really honest. And this was a dad who was really engaged and pretty certain that things were going well. And when he actually, um, made time to ask his wife about it, he found that her perspective was quite different. But then he went on to do what I heard a lot of fathers doing in my interviews, which was to say to her things like, well, you know, your mom has really high standards. So I think you got her really high standards. So maybe that's why you do more because your standards are so high. And she kind of politely agreed with him. I don't know how she really felt, but you know, she, he was recording the conversation and he was going to play it on his podcast. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I guess I can see that. And, you know, he, so he kind of like what men will do is say, I had men say to me, well, it's just my wife's personality. She needs to be busy all the time. And it's like, no, she doesn't need to be busy all the time. There's a lot to do around your house and you're not doing much of it. And that's why she's busy all the time. So it's, it seems to me very easy for men to write this off. Um, they get defensive. They deny their wife's experience. They say, well, I do more than other men. So men have kind of a handful of ways of really not engaging in this discussion. And it makes it really hard for their wives to get through to them because who wants to spend all their time fighting? It's, it can be quite frustrating for women um, that men are so sometimes unwilling to really broaden their, their perspective and look at it through their wives' eyes. Mm-hmm. So actually, what, and one thing that, um, that, that some have suggested what one woman said her couples therapist told her to keep a time diary to show her husband everything that she was doing during the week. And this woman reflected that it was really helpful because her husband looked at it was like, wow, I had no idea all this stuff was going on. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I actually, I was talking to a guy at a party. This was interesting. Maybe about a year ago when I was still writing, and I was telling him about the book and he said to me, he had a five-year-old or six-year-old daughter. He said to me, you know, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking my wife and I are pretty good about this. I, I think I really do a lot. But then I realized, you know, my daughter started camp yesterday and I have no idea how that happened. And right, because his wife had done all the research on the camp. She had done all the signups. She had done all the permission slips and medical forms and blah, blah, blah. And for him, like his daughter just seamlessly started camp the day before. So when he reflected, he was able to go, oh, wait a second. There, there was a lot that must have gone into that that I didn't know about. 
But anyway, he was, he was kind of a rarity among people that I talked to who just sort of um, were able to think and volunteer like, oh yeah, maybe this is happening. So it sounds like there's certainly some conversations that need to be had, even, you know, even there, I mean, yeah, I remember at some point with Bill, my husband, we were kind of getting into like a little pattern of that where I was doing, I mean, because I was a stay-at-home mom for, you know, a while and where I was doing kind of all the logistical work of the things. And then I said, you know, listen, I'm doing all of these things. And so we agreed he would take a few, you know, he would take piano and he would take the Shakespeare thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how the piano lessons get scheduled. I have no idea. Like it it all behind the scenes. I mean, that's one thing, but I mean, so what are, what are some, what are some things we can do? I mean, we obviously need to have some conversations, but then sometimes men are getting defensive or denying the experience or, you know, I, well, I think what you did is a really good idea to make to make certain things some like you are in charge of all the permission slips. You are in charge of all the camp. You are in, not you, but I mean, right, whoever, whichever yeah. partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, something that women would say to me during interviews is, "Well, he, t- I'll ask him to take something on, then he forgets. So I have to be constantly reminding him. So it's not really off my plate. So I think really delineating, you know, this is yours, and if you forget it, there are consequences. Um, if something is someone's, like your your husband probably knows exactly how to schedule the piano classes now or whatever, right? And that's totally on him, and you have no idea, and that's great. I mean, the goal in this is never necessarily fifty fifty. I don't know that mm-hmm. that's sustainable over the course of many years of raising children. I imagine things shift back." and forth. The goal is rather that things are not just defaulting to the mother, because that's the situation where couples really find themselves in a bad place, um, is when they've when they have this vague idea that things are going to be equally shared and they just default to the mom. And that is what happens if you don't actually say, here's everything that needs to happen and we each need to take part of it. So to live in a home where everything just does not default to the mother automatically seems to me to be kind of like goal number one rather than 50-50. People can divide up stuff however they want. But the couples who I spoke to who had had the most success with this were really bare bones and logistical about it and just the way you describe with your husband and the lessons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like if uh, a wife is saying, well, he'll forget about or something, I guess, you know, give them the responsibility of something that, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world if it doesn't happen. Like, well, oh, but that can't well, you know. be that can't be okay. I don't think. No. I mean, is this like if we've both decided mm-hmm. that we want our kids to have piano lessons, mm-hmm. or if we've both decided that we want our kids to have lunch at school? Like, mm-hmm. we this can't be forgotten, right? So this yeah. was another thing that men would say. Well, my wife's standards are too high, so if she wants these things to happen, she's just going to have to take care of them, and like as if that were an acceptable end to a discussion. So one woman, one mother said to me, you know, I, it's important to me that my kids are on time for school every day. So I have to be the one to drop them off. And it's like, why is that okay? Why, why wouldn't the parents get together? And she say to him, look, you're, you're, you're late a lot. And I don't think this is okay for our kids. I don't want to teach them this. I don't want them getting in trouble at school for this. Um, we, we need for you to get, get better at this where he can't just say, well, it's on you if that's important to you. Because that's a partnership, right? It's not just saying like, well, I'm going to opt out if you don't like the way I'm doing it. Another woman said to me, you know, if my husband 
fed them, they'd have hamburger helper every night. So I have to do the cooking. Again, like, why is that okay? Why not have a conversation where we talk about what our acceptable minimum standards are? You know, okay, you want to make hamburger helper, add some broccoli. That could be acceptable, right? So there's just not, there's like this this kind of opting out, like, well, your standards are higher, you have to do it, that really isn't okay. And then forgetting might not be okay too, right? If you and your partner both decide that piano is important and then it can't be forgotten and that's not acceptable. I, I, I mean, I, I really hear you and I appreciate what you're saying mm-hmm. when you say, well, if they forget, it's not the end of the world. But th- again, that's not co-parenting. Yeah, that is not co-parenting. I mean, I guess then the, res- the logical consequence of that would that be that there would be no piano and then we'd all be annoyed and the, do- you know, the daughter would be frustrated. Yeah, and right. You I don't mean, get out of your part of the parenting work by forgetting and us being like, oh, well, right? Because yeah, yeah. that, that does, mm-hmm. again, lead to more default parenting. Well, I know, I know this isn't going to happen if, if this is on your plate, so I'm going to take that on. You know, Darcy, I, I do a, I do a challenge like a four-day challenge twice a year called the unmartyr yourself challenge (laughs) and um, your book has given me plenty of information obviously to share but it was interesting as I was thinking about that I was thinking about like I started writing in the back of the book like actions people could take like what are some actions we can take like how can we translate this into action and you know at one point in the book you say you know tell your partner I can't do this all on my own but I, I love the idea of like yeah, I guess some of the things I wrote down as ideas were like, you know, some of the things we need to check in our, we, some things we need to kind of check in ourselves, like judging other moms for their choices or saying to other moms, what did you do with your kids or, or who's with the kids? Um, um, what, it, you know, what do you think about, uh, about some things that actionable things that we can do to, yeah. to start to start to shift this because it's, it, I don't want to pass this stuff on to the next generation. I don't want my daughters to be in a generation of, uh, other women who are, they're just absorbing this because all the other women around them are like yeah. this. Like, that's not fair. I don't want that for them. I think we really have to take a good look at our internalized sexism as well as asking our husbands to take a look at theirs. I mean, I know that I like reflexively will go out of my way to relieve my husband of a burden if he seems annoyed. Um, and I, I, I've been trying to stop doing that and he has been not allowing it. Like he, he's actually read the book. And since he's read the book, he, I will say like things have gotten better. I mean, discussions over the years that, you know, because of his defensiveness and my anger didn't go so far. Like I've really noticed some changes lately, which has um, been kind of interesting. And women have been telling me they've been following their husbands around the house, reading passages from the book out loud, which cracks me up. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think this book is a really close examination of why women and men behave the way they do. And I think once you really break all of this down, it's harder to stand by and watch yourself do it. So, you know, again, like just being aware of how we perpetuate this, for example, by saying to a a woman who's on a business trip, who's watching your kids, right? Because no one ever says that to men. Or um, not to compliment fathers, like, Oh, you're. Um, oh, you've got your kids at the park. That's so great, right? Because a mother doesn't hear that. Or like a friend of mine, and this story is in the book. Was planning a trip with her husband and another family, 
And the, my friend, her husband, and the, the mother and the other couple were all texting about what they were going to be doing. And the other mother was like, hey, do I need car seats in the car when I come pick you guys up at the airport? And then she put in parentheses, sorry to bother you with this, Davin. That was the dad. So like the conversation about fun had included him. But when she was asking about the car seats, she apologized for including him in that part of the conversation. Uh. And it's like that kind of thing is so typical, right? Like dads shouldn't have to bear this. And I think again, like we all men and women both internalize these ideas about who's responsible for this stuff. So I think taking a close look at that and then checking yourself, as you say, um, is a good idea if you are a man or a woman. Yeah. And I love this idea of the, you know, that awareness, like what are we saying? What are we believing? All of those things, like, can we start to start to take a look at it? And uh, the idea of keeping a time diary or writing all the things down. I mean, it reminds me of when we were frustrated with our daughters kind of wanting them to take more responsibility in the house. Right. And so what, what we did was we, he and I both wrote down all the things that we did and then cut out the little pieces of paper of all the things that we did. And we made a, took a big piece of poster board and divided it into quadrants and rewrote our names on each one. And then we put these pieces of paper with all of our tasks into the quadrants. And then, you know, this sort of the mom and dad quadrants were like, obviously, you know, heavy with items. And we said, look, this is all we're doing. Uh We need you to take some of these things. And they were like, oh, this is what we're doing. Wow. Okay. You know, here, I'll do this. I'll put away the, you know, whatever it was. Right. That's great. It almost sounds like we need a similar thing in our marital relationships. It's really funny because someone posted a picture on Twitter. It was a real estate agent and she had gone into a house and there was this chalkboard of everyone's responsibilities and it said mom, dad, kid, you know, the kids. And like the mom's quadrants, or not even quadrants because it was like a chalkboard, the mom's boxes were all full on every day and there was barely anything in the other places. And this family wasn't, I don't think, like examining this in order to change it was just like a list of everything that had to happen. Um, and the woman, the real estate agent posted it on Twitter because she thought it was kind of funny. And it, But it is such a good visual illustration of everything that everyone is doing. So I think that's a great idea with your kids. And one might do that with one's partner, I guess, too, if the partner is real resistant to seeing um, the unfairly divided unpaid labor. But you, you mentioned also that like that this is part of what needs to happen is that there has to be kind of individual resistance because we've made all this progress like in the workplace and the outer world and things like that. And this is all in our personal lives. And for change, because it's all kind of been stalled, what, since like 1994 or something so like that? 2000, around 2000 with the Bureau of Labor Statistics is when the increase in childcare stalled out by men, even though they had increased it. Yeah. In the- 80s and 90s as women were more in the work, mothers were more in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, So because, right, privilege is blind or invisible. I'm sorry, privilege is invisible to those who have it, right? Men don't often see how much more their wives are doing. So unfortunately, to someone, it, it does fall on women to kind of individually resist and really make this an issue in their partnerships. That is true. Okay. Right. I mean, it, it has to, right, it has to be a task that both partners engage in, but I, I think most often it um, probably will start with women. I think women do seven more hours of unpaid work than men per week. Um, and that, that's a lot, right? <laughs> One woman I saw recently said, I want those, I want that time back. I'm reading this book right now by Megan Stack called Women's Work 
Um, it's about her experience and having a lot of help in her home when she was, she's a journalist. She was working in China and India. And she talks about how there's this great line that I actually, um, she, she says, um, she talks about women not writing novels or commanding armies um, or doctoring or exploring or painting at the same rate as men. And she says, the cause was not, as I had been led to believe, that women had been prevented from working. Quite the opposite, we had been doing all of the work around the clock for centuries. And I love that line because it really says so much, right? I mean, women can't have more power in the world and more influence in the world and more... um, of of whatever else one might want outside of the home when one is saddled with so much more inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's increase our impact. Yes. Yes. Well, Darcy, this is, I could, you know, talk to you about this for so long. I mean, I, I was reading this book at, at, at the pool and before bed and sharing it with people. And I want to thank you for taking this frustration that you felt and turning it into this work, putting this all together in one place where people can and really access and see what this problem is and really understanding it and breaking it down and all these all these different dimensions. It, it really makes things really clear. So, you know, I want to thank you for coming on today, but also for 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 doing this work that you've done. Oh, thank you so much. That is so nice of you to say. And I really hope it does have an impact because I think we're really at a point in history right now where needles can be moved. And I, I hope to have helped that to some degree. And thank you for being interested in it and for approaching me to do this. It's been fun. Isn't that an eye-opening conversation? Her book is so eye-opening too. I, like I said, I spent a week so frustrated uh, reading that book, but I think that's part of the thing. You know, we need to know, be clear, and have awareness about what the problem is before we can do anything about it. So I hope this uh, podcast conversation in, inspires you to have some some challenging conversations of your own. And before I let you go, I just want to remind you that I just have a couple spots left in my group coaching for the remainder of this year. That's the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. This is the last time this will be offered this year. And it's at mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. And it's it can be an amazing journey. It can really change lives. It really is about create, changing your foundation bit by bit over time through, you know, lots of personal work. So I, if you would like to work with me, I would love to work with you. Let's talk about it. I'm happy to hop on the phone. Um, and of course you can head over to mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching to learn more about that or email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. And now I'm wishing you a peaceful week. I wish you some great moments of joy this week as well. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this time that we can connect. And I appreciate that you choosing to listen to the Mindful Mama podcast. It means a lot to me, the support I get and the feedback I get from listeners makes my days. So thank you so much for listening. Namaste. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 